Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. With me today are Jara. Greetings from the City of Lights, Ottawa, Ontario. <laughs> and Andy. Hello. All right, so before we get into our main topic today, we have a tiny bit of housekeeping to do first. As you know, our show is entirely supported by our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to become a patron, you can do so for as little as $1 per month and get some awesome rewards, from thanks on social media to silly watch-along commentaries. And just recently, we sent out some stickers that were featured at Star Trek Las Vegas. So you can visit us at www.patreon.com slash womenatwarp. You can also support us by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we want to send out a congratulations to Caitlin, who was our giveaway winner for the Eagle Moss Voyager XL edition. So, Caitlin, by the time you hear this, you should have already received an email, and uh, we hope to get that out to you as soon Yay. as possible. Now you can be like, there's coffee in that nebula as you're flying your mini Voyager. No, but the best thing about this giveaway, that of course was our question of what was Janeway looking for in that nebula. A lot of people wrote back coffee, which was obviously the answer we were looking for. But several people also wrote back, but really Omicron particles, because that's <laughs> what powers the replicator. <laughs> and it just made me so happy. <laughs> yeah, there were some pretty awesome creative answers. So thanks to everyone for entering. All right. So our main topic today is the book Articles of the Federation by Keith R.A. DeCandido. And a lot of people talk about this Star Trek novel as if it's the West Wing in space. Accurate. Pretty much. Yeah. And in the acknowledgments, uh, he even says it was kind of pitched to him that way. Well, that's cool. I think, Sue, you suggested this be one of our choices for, for book club. And yeah, I thought it was a neat choice because it tells the story of the Federation president, Nanyetta Bako. It's a post-nemesis and stuff is going down, and she has to weather sort of her first few months in office and under, like, a lot of really trying circumstances. And it's very different than a lot of other Star Trek novels, even though it's taking place in the established universe, because it's almost totally set in the Palais de Concorde, and it has a massive cast of original characters uh, that most of them you don't need to know that well. Uh, they just kind of come in and have opinions and then leave. It's kind of like the West Wing. Like, oh, hey, there, there's a Federation counselor who uh, <laughs> has opinions. And then there's a journalist. And they, but it, I think it uh, mirrors that dynamic really well of just like how busy things are and how many different massive issues you have to juggle at one time. Yeah, and this is, as you said, right after Nemesis. It's um, set in 2380, which, I mean, the events of Nemesis seem to take place around 2378, 2379 for Trek historians. So, like, basically me and two other people. <laughs> and uh, it covers the first-ish to first-and-a-half-ish term of Baco's presidency. So we see her after the previous president had resigned uh, after the end of the Riemann issue <laughs> and the Dominion War. 
Yeah, and I hadn't read, there's a, the series of novels, you know, A Time to Stand, A Time to Heal, A Time to Be Star trek I had not read that series, but <laughs> I had read uh, the Titan series, and in it does connect to, like, a lot of it is about the politics on Romulus after Nemesis, and after this deal that's brokered by Riker um, as captain of the Titan, that the Klingons will be the protectorate of the Remans to sort of ensure the Romulans aren't further oppressing the Remans and the sort of innate tensions of that situation. Yeah, but I would say that that's all fairly well explained yeah. in this book. So, And it's it's also placed fairly early in that shared continuity series that we've talked a little bit about mm-hmm. before. So you can jump into Articles of the Federation I feel, without really missing much, without having to, to read everything that came before. Yeah, I mean, Andy did that. How did you feel it went? Yeah. For the first, like, two chapters, I was like, I don't know what's going on, like, at all. <laughs> it's just a lot of people talking about things that I don't really understand. Part of this is just me, though, because I very rarely remember people's mm-hmm. names. So, like, when it comes to me and Star Trek, I am the opposite of most Star Trek people in that most Trekkies are like they know everything they know all the details they know all the names of the ships they know all the episode names they know all the even smallest characters which by the way I think is amazing I'm not throwing any shade at that I think that's amazing but for me it's very much like that dude who did that thing Mm -hmm. and so when it comes to something like this which has a lot of background to it and a lot of Names I don't really remember, and things that I'm like, oh yeah, that Shinzon guy, I think that was that Tom Hardy dude. <laughs> you know, like, stuff like that. So that was a little tough sometimes, especially in the beginning. But also I did like how often stuff that he was talking about kind of connected to the rest of Star Trek. I thought it, that was cool. Like, there was a lot of follow-up. Mm-hmm on things that just kind of ended, like Beef War comes back. Maddox. Maddox is like totally switch sides. Mm-hmm. That I thought was awesome. I would love the idea of, because, you know, this is uh, Measure of a Man is my favorite episode that I have seen thus far of Star Trek. So like seeing Maddox come back and that that episode had... The events of that episode had such an impact on him that it totally changed his worldview. I think that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And stuff like that in books like this, I think, is really cool. And what is basically the joy of Star Trek novels to begin with in that it's, you know, it's the continuation of stories that maybe we're not ready to let go Mm -hmm. of yet. And in that way, I mean, there's a reason why I read a lot of fanfic. Mm -hmm. I love that. So that was really cool. And a lot of this stuff, like, if you don't know who that person is or you missed that or whatever, it's okay. You just have to, like, kind of let it – Yeah. You just kind of have to let it float Mm -hmm. by you. Be like, okay, cool. I didn't quite get that, but – Yeah, because the book starts with, like, a mom and making her homeschooled daughter watch this Federation News Service a show called Illuminating the City of Lights. And in between the scenes with the characters, the main characters, we see like various different groups of people across the various quadrants watching this show that's basically like a commentary show about 
the uh the presidency and the the government at the Palais de Concorde and the people watching it you only need to know for that one scene and the people in the show like usually about half of them like they just kind of drop in and out like Admiral Janeway's there at one point that doesn't really like it's just kind of a nice little note but it was interesting because it was kind of more realistic that like yeah these like people do change up on these shows and one week you aren't going to have the same commentators and you don't necessarily need to know like the background of the aide to former ambassador what's his face but it because it explains like their opinions and why they have those opinions you can understand what you need to know yeah and i thought that that was a interesting way to sort of ground this book and that all of our like intermediary scenes mm-hmm. were around this show. And it was one of the interesting ways to allude back to characters that we know already. We saw Spock very briefly and a, and a few others. You, you mentioned Janeway and there are some admirals that we've, we've seen very briefly on the show but there were also a ton of new characters, which kind of, for me anyway, made it difficult to keep track of until I realized I mm-hmm. didn't necessarily need to. I think part of the reason why I'm good at that is because, by the way, my background is in mm-hmm. government and politics. And I have been working for politicians since I was a teenager. Like, I started my first campaign mm-hmm. when I was, like, 14. So I should tell you now that this is how politicians talk. Yep. <laughs> 110%. This is how they talk. They ha- So nailed it. Yeah, they just, they, they move from person, like talking about person to person to opinion. And it's, it's just exact, mm-hmm. exactly like that. Like when I hear politic nerds talk now, this is what, like half the time I don't know what they're talking about. And I'm like, whatever. The- it's fine. Yeah. I don't remember that guy that worked for that campaign that one time 10 years ago. Like. That's how it is. That's exactly what it's like. And that show they have is like Diane Reem show, 100%. <laughs> yeah, um, I liked, um, I thought that the the show was interesting. The one thing I wasn't 100% sure about is whether it was, like, I thought it was a little bit odd in some of them that they had, like, not just admirals, but like Starfleet commanders and stuff who are out serving on ships being on this show that's like a very political show. And I guess... Maybe in the future, everyone has, like, the right to their political opinions and to say that freely in the media, and that's great. But it seemed, like, odd to me as, like, some, that's something that wouldn't, like, that you would have people that are out there serving in, like, your diplom, like, in active diplomatic missions that are throwing shade on the mm. sitting president on TV. Fair point. Uh, but overall, like, I really, I what I most enjoyed was the way that they showed the different audience members reacting to it and the in their different part, different planets. And I liked the one with, like, the college roommates who just like one of them really wants to watch the show but otherwise mm-hmm. they hate each other yeah <laughs> it was very cute and like kind of reminds you that you know it can re- i mean i also work in political realms and we talk about the the bubble the ottawa bubble and it can be really easy to get stuck in the bubble but reminding you like how things are actually landing or not or let like, no one is even appreciating out where the people actually are is important mm-hmm. part of the problem though is is that if you're looking at it from a plot perspective there really isn't much of one it's like the day to day stuff but there's like if you had to if somebody asked me what happens in this book, I'd be like, um, stuff, 
don't know. Like, there's not really big plot points. There's a handful of, like, crises mm-hmm. that come back. So, like, you kind of get invested in these storylines, but they're not... There's not one through line. Yeah, it's not very structured. It's very much like these are these people and these are their lives. Like, I was almost expecting there to be more of a climax on one of those pieces, like, particularly on the Mm -hmm. piece around uh, the president who resigned and the uncovering of this, like, really pretty bad scandal in Starfleet where Starfleet forced a president's resignation, which is horribly undemocratic and illegal because the president had done some really awful genocidal type stuff well starfleet didn't one particular person in starfleet did and then it's like heavily implied that it was section 31 and maybe if i had read those books i would know that all um anyway i did really enjoy (laughs) that plot line it was like that was one that had a lot of gravity to it and a lot of like really high stakes but it felt like it i was expecting it to be more of a big deal than it was or like there to be more of a climax around it but it it kind of resolved in similar ways to the other ones Mm -hmm. yeah i kept waiting for one of them to become the big central Mm -hmm. issue whether it was the first contact storyline or the remans or the scandal or something else but none of them really did however we did see how they sort of built on each other mm-hmm. and the reactions that the the president and the chief of staff had to them and what was going on. That one situation means like, because the Klingons are already mad about this one thing, you really can't afford to make them mad over this other thing, like the, the interactions right. of these issues. Yeah, and I think that that was on purpose. Yeah. It was uh, meant to show the nuances of how certain issues and certain decisions can impact others and, you know, how complicated it can mm-hmm. get. So, yeah, I think that that was probably extremely deliberate. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and the idea that one thing at a time isn't always an option. It's never an option. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty much. But it also was one of the things, at least that I saw, paralleling the West Wing. I mean, those episodes of that TV show do generally have one central storyline. But if you binge watch it like (laughs) I have been... (laughs) It feels very much like you're watching a whole season. Well, and some, I mean, a lot of the pieces that I felt like directly related to West Wing for me um, were ones that were like side plots in West Wing. Like the guy who's trying really hard Mm -hmm. to write the birthday greeting for the boring agricultural secretary reminded me of the one where... Uh, Leo gives Sam the task of writing a birthday greeting to prevent him from going on a date with Mallory. Uh And the part where Nan Bacco has to, or where she goes in and basically yells at the, uh, the Deltons and the Koreans for not making their, uh, their treaty reminded me of the one where like Bartlett needs to go in and yell at both sides in the trucker's strike because he can't fix anything that day. And that's one thing he can fix. Uh So there were definitely like parts like that where, those were not necessarily like the main point of West Wing episodes. So, but it, it was effective and they're all like obviously things that would happen in a presidency in the future too. Yeah. And there were some character traits that Baco had. And I, I, Keith has said in the past, I've heard him say that he had based this character on his grandmother, but there are also some characteristics in here that ring very clearly to me of President Bartlett on the West Wing. So I'm wondering if those were just shared or where certain things came for came or came from like the um the baseball obsession the trivia 
you know. One area that was distinctly different, though, is uh, that I liked was that she doesn't like fancy language. Like she, she's the part where she's like, you know, mm. I usually change things. My speechwriter writes these like things, and I change things to sound like more because it, it's useless if the people can't understand what you're saying. And I'm like, yes, as a communications person, thank you. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, I liked. I, I thought she was a cool character to follow. She definitely, like. The part where she lectures Spock, I almost like my jaw dropped. I was like, you can't lecture Spock. <laughs> I like too that she, that's basically how she reacted too. She got out of there and she's like, I can't believe I just had to lecture Spock. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, nobody told me that would be part of this job and that sucks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, I just, I thought that it, it was a neat depiction of like an older woman in leadership that mm-hmm. didn't, fall into gender traps but um you know wasn't just like a she wasn't like a cookie cutter of a, a previous character yeah yeah i also really liked pinero yep the chief of staff uh esperanza mm-hmm. she i mean god it, in some ways it kind of stresses me out a little bit when i read about like esperanza and some of the other characters and like their their burnout and their feeling of having no time for themselves and i'm like oh gosh i remember that <laughs> yeah <laughs> That, like, feeling like you could just, you're going to be called on, like, 24-7 because a crisis is always going to be unfolding. And I liked her conflict with, is it Shiv, who, the Vulcan, who's, like, the uh, personal, the executive assistant for the president? Sivak. Sivak, yeah. Yeah. Yes, there you go. So there were some funny interactions there. Now, see, that character is way more like Sue on V than anyone on West Wing. Yeah, wasn't exactly Mrs. (laughs) Landingham. Yeah, which obvi- I'm pretty sure this book was written way before Veep, so perhaps, yes. <laughs> perhaps to keep. I mean, also, uh, Jarrell, the like press secretary, is like nothing like CJ. Like, there's obviously, like, I mean, uh, there's inspiration, but mm-hmm. a lot of creativity and uh, melding of traits to fit the the context of the novel. No. Jarrell is Toby, that disastrous time when he takes over <laughs> doing the briefings. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, he's like totally cranky all the time. I, I like too that they're like, that he had an assistant. He was like, why won't he quit? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was funny. I did appreciate though that they had the, who was it, the deputy chief of staff say, you know what, this isn't working for me. I can't, I can't do it. My husband's not happy. We had to move from a different planet. Yeah. I'm here. It was like 500 hours a week, she said. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I get it. I appreciate it. It felt very real Mm -hmm. in that way. Yeah, totally. I really liked the Vulcan and the Klingon ambassadors. I thought that they Mm -hmm. both had, like, interesting background. And the Vulcan ambassador was awesome and sassy, uh, just like a good Vulcan should be. And uh, I liked how... Bako like sort of checked herself and remembered that like sometimes it's easier to you know catch flies with honey rather than vinegar and Mm. then the Klingon ambassador is like sort of on the he's sort of like opposed to the chancellor so he's not necessarily like working in the best interest but Bako really wins him over through just basically being awesome and understanding how Klingons work. So I thought it was interesting reading through this how so many of the little I guess we'll call them subplot side stories had, I guess we're very prescient. Um, I'm thinking we're going to be maybe a little bit political here, 
but I'm thinking specifically about the Remans approaching Outpost 22 and the idea that they're going to seek asylum and the question in the government of what are we going to do about it. It felt incredibly timely to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is the situation where these, like, Remans are fleeing. They're under Klingon protection, so they're worried about making the Klingons mad if they give them asylum. They're also worried about the Romulans being mad. And they aren't really sure whether to trust the Remans because they used to work for that Tom Hardy dude. And Exactly, that Tom Hardy dude. <laughs> yeah. With the purple cape. Yeah. I remember that. Exactly. I understood that reference. And those, like, shoulder weird balloony things. To be honest, that's the best thing about Nemesis. <laughs> so, yeah. Just saying. Yes. And I kind of almost wanted it to be, like not end the way it did but i which is that the uh so basically <laughs> i don't know if someone else can give this this summary a better stab than me but the the remans are heading towards the outpost they're saying basically we're going to take them in on the outpost and not guarantee them asylum but we'll like process their claims and meanwhile the klingons just found all these other worlds that are like kind of shitty but not as shitty as remus so we'll mm -hmm. move them there and they can have their own planet. And Spock thinks this is a good idea. Everyone kind of thinks this is a good idea. But then it looks like there's going to be some bigger problems. And I forget, <laughs> is it the Klingons are going to come and stop this or the Romulans are going to come? Well, the, the Klingons view them as nationals, right? So the Kinemar yeah. Accords would say that the Federation has to turn them yeah. over if they seek asylum to the right. Klingon Empire. And Baco's argument is, well, they're not nationals. They're under your protection. They're not mm -hmm. citizens. So that's the fight with the Klingons. But then before an answer can be given, the Remans broadcast Shinzon's war cry and kill themselves. Yeah, they like do a suicide run into the outpost, but they only kill like 31 Starfleet people and the, they kill all of themselves. I think it's three oh, Starfleet yeah, sorry. people. Three, I meant three. Uh, did I say 31? Section 31. Yeah. They're in my brain. But <laughs> what I think is important is that even though in some ways, like, it kind of gave a bit of an out to the conversation because everyone's like, well, I guess they were criminals and we, I guess we should just be glad more people didn't die. I think it's important mm -hmm. that the bigger discussion was, well, should we have given them asylum sooner? <laughs> Yeah. yeah. They spent a lot of time talking about what the right course of action was there, but not really giving any reasons mm -hmm. other than fighting about the language in the Kittimer Accords, mm -hmm. which I kind of, maybe it is what is happening in our current political climate, but I kind of wish there was a little bit more reminder. Like cause it felt, it felt like a given, yeah. which it should be for like Starfleet at this point that like, the right thing to do is to assume good faith and like uh -huh. investigate, but like make sure that people are safe first and foremost. Well, and have empathy and like, don't assume just because like, cause they're saying like, well, these people are also outcasts casts on their own world. So maybe they are desperate. Yes. Maybe they could be integrated. So that was, it was interesting. I think that, yeah, I mean, it also would have been good if they had been less faceless, but I mean that the whole thing about this 
book is like all the things that are happening are happening a little bit removed. Uh And it was almost like fascinating that you could have so many things occurring in like everywhere in the galaxy and they're constantly just like pinging back and forth to to Paris. Um, I did also really like that subplot at the end with the doctor who doesn't want to treat the Zen Kathy kid. That was super yes. powerful. There's like a, a woman Starfleet doctor who was abducted by the Zen Kathy and basically like forced to treat only their like wealthy patients and treated really horribly. And then after the war was done, instead of t- giving her back to the Federation, she was a prisoner of war. They lied and said she was dead and her whole family went on without her. So like she's very angry and traumatized by this whole experience. And then they've the Sen Kathy have like sent a two year old boy to her and she's the only one who can save him by operating. And I thought it was really neat how like they all have this conversation with her and like look, we understand we don't want to force you to do this, but we want mm-hmm. you to make the right choice here. And yeah, I don't know. I just thought like all the nuance in that, which e- even was like still a relatively small part of the book was really well done. Although it had a really sad ending. It was really sad because she wasn't fast enough uh, to decide and they weren't fast enough to push her or whatever. And in the end, the kid died anyway. And then she resigned her commission. Yeah, they said it would take a whole, it would have been a whole okay. month earlier. Yeah. So, I mean, they didn't even send mm-hmm. the kid with yeah. enough time. Okay. But there there was so much emotion and, I don't know, different threads happening in just that one story. Mm-hmm. I mean, she said they, they kept her for four years for an additional two after they they told the Federation that she was dead. And her whole family mourned her. Her husband remarried. Mm-hmm. And then, like, her coming back ended that Mm -hmm. marriage because of the disruption. Her children, I think she said, hadn't spoken to her in 15 Mm -hmm. years. And then she she makes this very difficult decision to perform this surgery, and it fails Mm -hmm. anyway. And then she gets accommodation and resigns at the same time. And it's just... Yeah. Like, I want a whole book about that. (laughs) The thing that I like most about that storyline is that it has an unhappy ending. Yeah. Because sometimes you can mm. do everything right and still lose. Hard. Yeah. But, like, sometimes you do. You make the right choices, and you do the moral thing, and you do everything that you're supposed to do, and it's still a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was really cool. And important. Mm-hmm. I also, um, I mean, there were some other moments like that, too, where they're kind of doing stuff they don't love to be doing, like persuading people who have legitimate points to give up on their points. Like the, well, I mean, actually, uh, this wasn't a legit, so much a legitimate thing, but the the whole like Cardassian aid storyline, and like comparing it to the Marshall Plan, and how there's like people who are just like still holding really big grudges against Cardassian, like Cardassia, like the Betazoid guy. And I thought that part, that was another really well done section. I also thought it was interesting, the fight over committee placements, committee yep. appointments, and especially with the, the counselor from yeah. Bajor about they've only been in, in the Federation for a few years, but it's such a strategic yeah. part of the Federation territory being so close to Cardassia, being the entryway to the Gamma Quadrant. And just the, the debates that, that came from that in this book, even though it was one of the, the even smaller sections. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, 
talking about the council, I think one of the best moments that the president has is apologizing. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. there is a pretty minor storyline in that she finds out that the Federation is still trading with a planet that has slavery. And she's like, why are we doing that? That's immoral. It's against everything that Federation stands for, which is all true. And the problem wasn't that she was wrong. The problem is that she did not raise her concerns in a way that was respectful to the council. And they punished her for it. So that is um, a really common (laughs) problem that comes up. And the fact that she was like, you know what? I was wrong. This has damaged my relationship with the council. I'm going to apologize and try and fix it was not something that happens in politics very often. And she won a lot of them back yeah. with that apology. And just in general, the the idea of you can be right, but express it poorly is um, something mm-hmm. that's just true. Mm. I will say, though, that her apologizing and them accepting the apology kind of goes to, I don't know that that, that would not happen. Mm-hmm. In modern day American democracy, anyway, and I don't know how everybody else's democracy is going, but um, doesn't feel like it's going great. And I don't think that that works in the society that we have right now. And uh, it wouldn't be lovely if we got to a point where apparently the Federation is at in this book. Well, actually, that makes me wonder. Because the Federation has health care. The Federation has food. Nobody has to work if they don't want to. Yet there are still elected officials and representation. I mean, is it a true democracy that the Federation is in? Or has the system of government changed in some way? Well, I mean, it seems like it's one representative per planet on the council. And that there's... I may mm-hmm. be wrong, but like that there's only one governing house, one governing council. That's certainly what's implied for sure. Which is like not the norm in really anywhere. Um, like even places, uh, well, like, you know, Canada and stuff where we have like the unelected Senate. So like even disregarding them, like it's odd to have just like straight representation regardless of population as your only Form. It also is implied that the counselors are appointed, mm-hmm. actually, but the president is elected. Except for at one point, there is a, a counselor on that show who was like, it's stupid that the president is talking to constituents because the only real kind of feedback you need from constituents is if they don't want me back, they can not reelect me. And then that Mm -hmm. will tell me that my job is Mm -hmm. not, I was not doing a good job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And actually there's an election on, in the DS9 book that we read about the worlds of Andor that follows an election on Federation council, but it's sort of implied that there's not usually a lot of turnover, Mm -hmm. like the Vulcan's been there forever and stuff. So it's uh, maybe not usually super hotly contested in from everywhere. Um, and we also know there's planetary governors. That's where Nandako yeah. came from. That line he has actually reminds me of a saying that one of my old bosses used to have, which was, because every once in a while in Illinois term limits will come up, mm-hmm. 
And I've worked in Michigan, too, where there is term limits, and pretty much everyone in government hated it because you would have an issue where all the institutional knowledge would turn over. So you'd get people who didn't know what they were doing all at once. And so it was this really rough turnover process. And then in Illinois, we don't have term limits. And the saying that my boss used to have was, we have term limits, they're called elections. So, Mm -hmm. like, they want people to leave office, they have to unelect them, is kind of the the argument there. In theory, yes. (laughs) Yes. It's it's definitely not a cut-or-dried issue. Like, there are a lot of different, Mm -hmm. I guess positions you could take on that that would be valid so yeah i mean i don't know i don't think we saw a lot of examples of like how well represented people are as individuals at the council because we also don't have a clear understanding of like what their jurisdiction is versus planetary governors Mm -hmm. but i mean it certain certainly implied that there there should be a democratic relationship with the people yeah i found that this book was very kind of interesting in that I felt like it was simultaneously extremely cynical and extremely naive, mm-hmm. which was kind of funny to me because on the one hand, it is extremely cynical in the sense that you have the Federation, which is supposedly so progressive, and then you have a president who arms a genocidal maniac, covers it up, allows, I think it's like thousands of people to die. And then a military representative, because in this case, Starfleet is military, effectively killing him. Mm -hmm. Like, they literally kill him. Mm -hmm. Or at least it's extremely heavily implied that he is dead. Yeah. And that is, um, that's an issue, y'all. Yep. That's like, that's like, that's like, I mean, here I am crying over the state of American democracy, at least as far as I know, we've never taken a president out back and had him shot, you know, like, (laughs) so that is super cynical to me that even in a progressive utopia, such as the Federation, that we have sort this sort of thing happen is, um, wow, that's, that's heavy. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And then also, simultaneously, I feel like it's extremely naive because throughout the book and the way that Keith, the Canada, talks about it, he very much believes in public service Mm -hmm. and he treats public service as like a given, I guess, that all politicians and people who seek this power are doing so out of like an idea of public service, which I just think is wrong. Mm-hmm. in general and then I, I don't know it's interesting it's it's a weird mix <laughs> i find it i find it uh very thought-provoking yeah i would say like just given the ending that like the overall tone is optimistic it, and i mean that's uh there's a similar tension in the West Wing, too. And there's, I mean, I certainly remember watching it during the Bush 1 presidency, or Bush 2 presidency. And, you know, uh, having all the, like, basically the people talking about, like, how how much of an honor it is to serve at the pleasure of the president. And being like, I don't understand that at all. <laughs> but, like, but I do. Like, I understand the, the, the myth, I guess, or the, like... Idealism? Yeah. The symbolism and the, um the 
power of like what it should mean to be elected to the highest position. And having worked in politics, I have seen a lot of people who do do it for the right reasons. And I do think, like, I, I liked the part where she's giving the speech at the funeral because when she talks about how, like, this is the hardest job. Because it, if you're, if you're in it for the right reasons, especially, it's a really hard job. And there are always going to pe- be people who are awful and not happy, even if you're trying your best at your job every day. Well, in that speech at the funeral, and it comes up again, I think, later in the book as well, she says something to the effect of, if... If the Federation is still intact when you're done, <laughs> then you've done a good job. Mm-hmm. Or maybe you've done the job. Yeah. I'm not sure if the good was there. How do you feel about that? Is that true? I would say that that's pretty much that speech. I feel like is coming straight from Keith the Canada. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's very much his like thesis of this book, essentially. And he actually posted on Twitter a thread that is extremely similar to that in that there was a person who had read this book for Trek Book Club, who if you're interested in joining the Trek Book Club, you can catch at at Trek Book Club. Um, And they actually read this book just before we did. And she brought up that she, like he, he, at the very beginning, he posts a, he dedicates the book to all the former U.S. presidents up until that point. I think it stops at Clinton. Uh, George too. George W. Bush. Okay. And there was a woman named Jen who kind of pushed back on that and was like, I don't believe in this idea of like the respect for the office kind of thing. And if we're talking U.S. presidents, she literally says like, there are men on this list who have literally committed genocide. You know, yeah, the Republic was still standing after that, but like, would we still consider them to have done a good job? You know, and he props to him because, you know, sometimes people get hurt when it comes to criticism, which I understand. Like, you've worked really hard on this piece of art and you want people to love it. And also it it feels like it's a direct criticism of you, which sometimes it is Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's not. But, like, one of the things that I really respect about how he handled this criticism, which is very valid, is that he was like, your criticism is very valid. And here's my response. And he basically said this speech, essentially, which was like, it's really hard. This job is really hard. And, you know, he goes through each of the presidents and, like, his issues for it. But he says, ultimately, they still chose to serve their country in the most impressive manner possible. Even some of the really terrible ones did some good, just as the good ones did bad. But more to the point, they chose to do quite possibly the most difficult job in the world. And I don't know. I feel like that that idea has a really obvious flaw in its foundation in that you're assuming that all of those presidents chose to serve in good faith. And I don't think that's true. Not even a little bit. Hmm. So... I don't know. I disagree with him on that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like, I want that to be the case. Like, I want, I want people, like, kids who are interested in, like, to be interested in politics and to see it as a vehicle for a way that you can make positive change in the world. But, like, it, yeah, it is really hard to look at it that way. And, I mean, and you don't want to be, like, 
overly rosy about the history, especially because, like, even though, yes, like, absolutely a really hard job and all, all of those leaders and, like, you know, leaders we're looking at in Canada now examining their legacy, like, they did things that shaped our, the way our society lived today, but also for the worse, and that it wasn't just because it was a hard job. Like, society, like they were picked because they, in some cases, were, like, totally willing to further the most common prejudices of the time. And they used their power to do that. And in ways that have lasting impacts on people still alive today. And also, mm -hmm. he adds at the end that he would have added Barack Obama and Donald Trump to that list. Mm -hmm. Like, And to me, that's hilarious because... And, and I'll, I'll fully admit that I am probably farther to the left than most people and also more cynical than most when it comes to government. I don't think the U.S. has had a good president. I think we are on the list of, like, least terrible. Yes. <laughs> because a solid, what, third of them were slave owners. And, like, Jen pointed out that there are quite a few people with genocide in their resume there. So I guess I just find it disingenuous because if, if you're telling me that, even if you're a Trump supporter, I don't know, like if you're telling me that you think Donald Trump ran for the presidency because he wanted to serve. Yeah. Uh, like, no, I'm sorry. That's like, there are people who run for office specifically for power. And so that they can give power to certain, you know, friends, corporations, whatever you want to say. And, like, they're not mm -hmm. there for public service. They're there to, to, to steal, essentially. And I have seen that at every level of government. There's a reason why there's so much corruption. Mm -hmm. People who award contracts that will give government money to private corporations that, you know, gave them campaign contributions. Or even worse, like, straight-up bribes. And so... I don't know. I just find that kind of maybe not as nuanced as I would like. But I do really respect how he handled yeah. that. And I do really respect that point of view because I feel like that point of view is how it should be. Yeah, exactly. And that point of view is the, like, I wish. the ideal that we would we need to get to. Yeah. Like that that is the goal right there. Mm -hmm. I just don't think we're there yet. And I don't think even in his book they're there yet. Mm -hmm. Well, it reminds me, I mean, this is much lighter than the conversation we just had. But it reminds me again of the West Wing and the young blonde Republican Ainsley. that they bring in. Yes, that's her name. I couldn't remember it. To uh, the, the law offices of the president. And one of the things she says is, you know, I've always wanted to serve the president, to serve at the pleasure of the president, but mm -hmm. I never thought it would be this president. And I, I think that we have these situations where we're, at least in the U.S., sort of like brought up to be in mm -hmm. awe of the office of the president. But as we we learn more and more about the people who have held it, mm -hmm. there's just this cognitive dissonance yeah, that absolutely. comes along with it. One of the things that's been most saddening about where I started when I started my, I guess you could call it political career, because I will never run for office, but Public service. Public service. Yeah, whatever you want to call it. Is I genuinely believed this for the longest time. 
Oh yeah. This is this is what I wanted it to be. This is why I, I like I wanted this. Mm-hmm. And the more that I learned about the people that inspired me and the more that I learned about the process and the more that I learned about what goes on behind the scenes, the more I realized that like there are bad people who are good politicians. So like you have people that are voting the right way and for the right policies, but they're horrible human beings. You have good people that are bad politicians, you know, like bad at the game, Mm -hmm. but like a genuinely good person. Mm -hmm. And then you, but the number one thing that I've learned about politicians is that you should never trust them. Mm -hmm. That you, even good ones, like there are political figures that I consider family. Like they're, I think they're good people and I love them. I would never like say that you should never trust politicians because the number one thing that they will always do, no matter who they are, is they will always look at a decision and think, how is this good for me? And the reason that is, is because that is the nature of who you have to be to get into politics. It's like, if you want to succeed, that's what happens. So it's really frustrating because you should always question them. It doesn't matter who it is and who, if they're on your side, your side, I'm using air quotes here, or not. Like, you always have to question them and you always have to keep their feet to the fire and you always have to reevaluate, is this a person I can trust in my best interests over and over and over again? And the moment you stop doing that is the moment that you've stopped being a good citizen because you got to keep how to keep them in in their place they work for you mm-hmm. you know and i feel like part of the problem that we are in right now is that people just started voting for a party and then after that stopped questioning who was in office i don't know mm-hmm. it's really tough the whole thing is really tough yeah i've certainly had some don't meet your you know never meet your heroes moments in politics where you just are really disappointed i do know some politicians who have surprised me um, by their depth of their integrity. But I think a healthy degree of skepticism. And uh, as long as it's not to the point that it disengages you from the process entirely, like make make yeah. it should make people more active. But I think unfortunately, sometimes what it does is just make people be like, Oh, they're all the same. Why should I even vote? Why should it even turn up? And I should be clear that I have worked for good politicians. So they do exist. You just always, always question them. Yeah. So I'm saying like, at no point should you treat them as and like all-encompassing power that you must always respect because to me the office of the president i only respect it as far as i respect the person who is in that office at that moment mm-hmm. you know there's a line in firefly where they're said that anybody who's ever ha- had a statue made of them was some sort of some of son of a bitch <laughs> in some way this is true mm-hmm. like the more you learn about people that are held up to be heroes when it comes to history not always the case. Yeah. I mean, look at, in, if we're bringing it back to this book, look at how hard they are working to keep this guy who was completely corrupt as a part of, like, this grand tradition of Federation presidents. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they rehabilitate his image. Mm-hmm. Specifically because they don't want people to distrust presidents yep. of the Federation and to hold them up as, right. you know good people always and i get that impulse but i don't know mm. i'm very much of the 
mind that you should be like, yeah, this dude sucked. Here's why. And here's why we shouldn't elect someone like him later. Mm -hmm. So we actually are going to be interviewing Keith DeCandido and we're going to be sharing a little bit of that interview with you here on the show. But then the rest of it will be available for our patrons on Patreon. Um, So now might be a good time to segue into the interview. So hi, Keith. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Good to be here. Uh, We're super excited to talk to you about Articles of the Federation. And uh, I know you've said in the past, both to me and to others, that... um, Nan Baco was inspired by your grandmother? My great-grandmother. Your great-grandmother. Can yes. you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, my great-grandmother, uh, her name was uh, uh, Gra- Grazia Silverio. Uh, I called her Nana. And uh, her married last name was Debaco, which is where Nan Baco comes from, Nana Baco. And um, she came to this country from Italy uh, in the early part of the 20th century, along with large numbers of other Italians. And um, she came into Philadelphia and moved out to rural Western Pennsylvania. Uh, it was limestone country out there. So there was, there was work uh, in the limestone mines. And um, she proceeded to have 10 kids. Um, and the oldest of whom was my grandmother. And what, and, and she, and as a result of this became the matriarch of this Jagunda family, uh, I, I I could not possibly count all my cousins. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, and 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 don't even get me started on the second cousin. So the uh, it's it's pretty ridiculous. So, but the, the the amazing thing to me, in particular, is that all ten of her children uh, grew up to be genuinely good, nice people. Um. And, and, and they all loved her very much. Uh, and she was just amazing, you know, taking care of all these people living in this itty bitty house <laughs> in which she raised 10 kids. And, and she always was, you know, in charge, kind of in charge of everything and always, you know, was everybody deferred to her on pretty much everything. And I could totally see her running the Federation without any problem at all. <laughs> uh, Having said that, while while uh, Nana was the primary inspiration, there were others uh, who kind of got mixed in the stew there uh, to form President Baco. Um, two two women from Texas were very much uh, an influence on her. One was a politician, uh, Ann Richards, who was the governor of mm-hmm. Texas for a while, uh, and the other was a, a political writer named Molly Ivins. Oh yeah. Um, they were, uh, she was the one who first referred to uh, George W. Bush as shrub <laughs> uh, back when he was governor of Texas. And, uh, and, and, and there is one other influence that's kind of obvious uh, to anybody who's read the book or any other books that she's in. Uh, one of the influences on the character of President Baco was, in fact, uh, uh, President Jed Bartlett from the West Wing. But yes, there's, there's <laughs> a lot of old Jed in there. But uh, so, yeah, that's, that's pretty much. I was assuming that's where the the love of trivia and the sports all came from. Uh, well, not so much. Uh, Bartlett was never much of a baseball fan. That was really Toby's oh, thing. That but, was Notre Dame, <laughs> really. <laughs> but uh, having said that, yeah, the 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 love of obscure trivia and 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 of being spectacularly snotty to the staff, um, pretty much was 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 Bartlett. 
Although there was a little, that, that was a little my great, my great grandmother too. <laughs> yeah, we had uh, several questions from listeners about the uh, West Wing inspirations, um, including from Barnabas and from Jacob. And uh, wondering also if, if there were other characters where you were drawing inspiration from, from West Wing um, or just, you know, where, where else you were drawing inspiration from when you were creating this cast of um, many, many original characters in addition to the ones we are familiar with. Uh, some of them, there, there was a little bit of, of inspiration. There was certainly a certain amount of Toby in the character of Fred McDugan. Um, yep. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the relationship between uh, Baco and, and Esperanza Pinero is very much like the relationship between Bartlett and Leo McGarry. Having mm-hmm. said that, it's also very much the relationship that you see a lot in Star Trek between the captain characters and the first officer characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's the same relationship, you know, um, that, that was, that was part of the appeal of doing this to me was just, was that that kind of, um, leader and second in command relationship, uh, is, is something that's always been very integral to Star Trek from, you know, uh, from Kirk and Spock all the way forward, even, even in a bizarre sort of way, uh, with Burnham and Tilly on, on Discovery, um, that sort of, you know, mentor mentee or, or, you know. Or as, as Bartlett put it in, in one episode, he's actually referring to Josh about this, but it, but it applies here too. One of them wants to be the guy and the other one is the guy the guy depends on. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, Baco is very much the guy and, and the guy has always been a non-gender specific term in my family, so I never, you know. But Baco is the guy and Pinero is the guy she depends on. So, you know, the one who sort of makes things happen, you know, for her. Um, some of the some of the subplots in articles were were definitely inspired by the West Wing, some more than others. Um, the 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 original uh, impetus behind the book was to do a Star Trek version of the West Wing. That, that's how the whole thing started. Was John Ordover came up to me one day and said, "Hey, I want you to do a Star Trek version of the West Wing." That was exactly how he said it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it sort of languished for a while. And actually, the actual editor of the project uh, when it happened was Marco Palmieri. Um, uh, after John left, Simon and Schuster. Um, we'd been, we'd still been talking about it and wanted to do it. And Marco really helped focus the book a little better because John, with John, it never got really past the concept. Um, and Marco and I sat down and really worked out, you know, what, what the story would be, or more accurately, what the stories would be. Part of the point of it was to, there isn't one single overarching plot so much as it is a whole bunch of little plots, which is, which is the way politics works. There's a whole bunch of little problems to deal with, some bigger than others. Um, one of the things Marco wanted, which I was, which I was completely on board with, was the, to show the second half of a first contact situation. We always see the first half of it on Star Trek. We see the part where the ship contacts the species and becomes friends with them and whatnot. Then what happens? You know, what ha- you know the, the Enterprise makes the first contact and then they sail off to the next planet. Um, what happens after that? You know, how do, how do they start the process of becoming possibly members of the Federation or at least being integrated into or becoming protectors of the Federation or whatever, so. Mm-hmm. You also had to fit this into the, I guess, the early stages of the shared continuity timeline, the post-nemesis books. Um, we were pretty late in shared continuity at that point. Um, that, that had already started a few years earlier, but um, yeah, part of, part of, part of it was... Uh, to to be integrated with that, but that was that was always that was always a feature of it. We always at that point we had pretty much settled into all the twenty fourth century stuff being connected to each other, um, particularly once 
it was clear that Star Trek Nemesis was going to be the last next gen movie. Um, we we weren't bound by anything at that point. The uh, the on screen stuff was going to be focusing exclusively on the the twenty second century with Enterprise at that point, uh, and then later the movies on the twenty third century. Um, so uh, we we pretty much were given carte blanche to do whatever the heck we wanted with the twenty fourth century. <laughs> so uh, so pretty much we we had pretty much decided at that point that we were everything was going to be interconnected. Um, and, and part of what I was working with was, uh, what Andy Mangles and Mike Martin had done in the first two Titan books. Um, Mm and, uh, and, and that, that one in particular, because that affected the Romulans because I wanted to play with the Romulans. That that was, I figured that would be one of the big through lines throughout the whole thing. Cause Nemesis in Nemesis, you had the, um, you had the entire Romulan Senate turned to pixie dust and then who turned them into pixie dust, got killed. So there was a serious power vacuum there, and that's something that would have a major effect on everybody. Yeah, absolutely. So that, and that would be something that would have to be dealt with. So, Not to mention the, the Tezwa crisis in uh, A Time to Kill and A Time to Heal, which were two of the pre-Nemesis books that David Mack wrote, and that, that was something that was going to have some fallout too, and I wanted to deal with that. So. So again, if you'd like to hear more of our interview with Keith DeCandido, you can head over to patreon.com slash women at work. And that about wraps it up for us today. Jara, where can people find you on the interwebs? You can find me on Twitter at J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin. And Andy? Easiest place to find me is on Twitter at First Time Trek. And I'm Sue. You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor. That's S-P-A-L-T-O-R. If you'd like to reach the show, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Women at Warp. Check out our blog and show notes at womenatwarp.com or send us an email to crew at womenatwarp.com. And for more from the Roddenberry Podcast Network, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Mm-hmm.